The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Hello, this is Diana Wiseman. I am a neurosurgeon in the Seattle area and part of the Mass Public Affairs Committee. I have the privilege today of interviewing Donna Leahy who, about her article in the Spineline May-June edition from 2018 titled Drowning in Denials, the Insurance Denial and Appeal Process. Um, Ms. Leahy, welcome to the podcast, and if you can give us a little bit of background about yourself, that would be great. Thank you, Dr. Wiseman. Um, currently, I um, am a CEO of the Spine Institute of Arizona, an RNFA um, that assists in clinic and surgery here at our practice. Um, I am heavily involved in ASS on the coding, um, parapolicy review, and advocacy committees, and um, I'm a member of the board of directors of um, NAS. Um, I'm honored to be asked to um, participate in this podcast and look forward to um, helping to answer any questions I can about this process. Great. Well, thank you so much again for, for joining us today. And let me dive right in with our first question. Um, let me, Ms. Leahy, why do you believe that the claims process overall has, um, including the pre-authorization aspect, has become so extremely complex over time? Um, you're, you're very correct in saying that the pre-authorization process has become extremely uh, complex. Um, I feel the reason it has is really about cost saving and not really about patient care. I think the payers want to help reduce costs of healthcare by preventing what they see as unnecessary procedures. Um, I think the problem here lies within that they are using really unqualified personnel to determine exactly what unnecessary procedures are. Um, you know, cost has really become the bottom line. Um, in healthcare, there are a plethora of things that can influence the healthcare revenue stream, um, but the preauthorization process is really on the forefront right now. Um, Payers save a lot of money by denying claims. Um, this is very costly to providers because um, it's been estimated that it costs in the range of approximately $35 to $100 for each prior authorization occurrence. And that figure is really unsustainable to a small practice. Um, you know, care needs to be placed back in the hands of the physician. Payers are now the um, people who are determining care for patients. Um, they are now determining medical necessity and making decisions that they believe promote patient safety and efficacy. In doing so, they do this in a very non-transparent way. Um, as the process is now, the pre-authorization process, it actually impedes patient care, um, and barriers have been created that delay evidence-based care delivery for physicians. So this is becoming more increasingly complex um, over the years. and. I feel that it's going to continue to become more complex unless we do something about it now. And just going back to when you mentioned with insurance companies and, and individuals within the companies that are are not necessarily as well informed as they could be in making these determinations. Um, who who is classically driving the the determination process? For example, for doing a lumbar fusion um, or a cervical fusion, who, who's kind of driving those guidelines within the companies themselves? 
Well, your first level when you call for a pre-authorization is actually to speak to an intake coordinator at the insurance company. Now, these intake coordinators have very little knowledge um, of the actual procedure that you're performing. Um, sometimes these intake coordinators actually just look at the paperwork they have in front of them that is a set, you know, guideline from the insurance company and without looking at the particular situation that you're calling about, that I flat out denial right on the spot. Other times it can go to a nurse to review or it can go to a physician to review. But this is also a problem because if you're submitting an authorization, you want somebody who has direct knowledge about spine care, but the nurse or the physician are actually not spine care providers. They could be OBGYN surgeons, they could be family practice physicians, they aren't necessarily within your specialty. And this creates an overabundance of denials. Then when you go to the peer review process, you actually have to ask for somebody within your specialty because if you don't, you'll get somebody outside of your specialty who again doesn't know what's going on. So this is a problem that we actually need to have fixed with our payers. And is there a path that you think uh, will help fix that? Um, is there one particular thing that you think insurance companies could do now that would make this, this an easier process? Well, you know, there, there are a bunch of things that insurance companies can do to try to make it an easier process. To start out with, you know, having someone who actually is an um, expert in your field when you call in and they're an expert and they know about spine surgery or spine care, having someone with knowledge about spine surgery and spine care take the authorization so that they understand what you're talking about can help that process. There, there are a bunch of other things on a larger scale that need to be done with the payer community and the provider community in order to streamline the authorization um, process, and that's on a much larger scale. Okay. And then you mentioned in the beginning of your article that as practitioners we should understand the process better. Do you think that we would be better served to have a third party involved that that has more of our best interest, and, and again, would that help that pre-authorization process, do you think? No, Dr. Weissman, I don't think um, that would help at all. Um, you just previously asked about, you know, what I think the insurance company can do better in order to streamline this process. Um, I think we'd be better served by a transparent process, which is standardized throughout the entire healthcare industry. Um, there was a recent analysis done of 1,300 procedures, specific authorization policies among the 23 major health plans, and only 8% had any type of commonality whatsoever. I mean, commonality doesn't even exist within a healthcare plan. There are subplans within each healthcare plan, and each of those subplans have their own independent pre-authorization policies in place. So even within one insurance carrier, they don't even have standardized plans for pre-authorization within their own health care plan. So it's, it's very, very complex right now. So creating yet another barrier between the patient and physician makes no sense to me. Um, many pairs right now have third parties that now analyze and review their authorizations, and those pr third parties have denied claims and authorizations at a higher rate um, than when they did not use those third parties. So. Um, 
I really think that having another barrier or another party involved would not help the situation. Um, it's been found that the reviews that the third party um, people do are not really independent reviews. They're reviews that are focused on cost savings. Okay, thank you. And uh, turning a little bit more into your article where you were talking about processes to help um, get the claims going through and, and decrease denials. Um, you mentioned going through the process of checking the patient has appropriate insurance, and then you talk about follow-through checks for this. Um, regarding some of these steps, when you, uh, how do you to determine easily within the office if the patient's insurance is about to be terminated? I know one aspect is asking the patient, but what if the patient really isn't quite sure? Is there any any processes that your clinic or what, that you would advise that people go through to, to check that things are about to be terminated? Yeah, determining if the patient's insurance is about to be terminated is difficult at times. I think in the most straightforward cases, you know, a patient has a policy start and end date, which cycles on a yearly basis. Um, so before the patient comes into the office, offices usually get the insurance information and check with the insurance company for verification of benefits. Now, there's a time period between when that happens and when the patient comes in the office, just like there's a time period between when a procedure is actually ordered versus when that procedure is scheduled. It's really during that particular time period where the problem lies because, say, example, you know, there's circumstances where a patient is switching employment or they terminate their plan before the start of the preauthorization process and when they're going to have a procedure or be you know, before their appointment and then the actual time that they actually have their appointment. And this is where I believe, you know, a lot of the issues are created. I, I advise everybody in our practice and, and when I teach, I advise um, everybody in their practices to reconfirm the benefits again and do that within a 24-hour period of the procedure or the appointment. Um, most insurance companies are really forthcoming about their, um, you know, uh, benefits and when they're going to start and when they're going to terminate for the patient. So this typically isn't an issue when you call an insurance company. They'll let you know if the patient's benefits are still active, and they'll also let you know, even if a patient has terminated, they'll let you know if the patient actually applied for COBRA coverage underneath them. So you'll know that even if the patient terminated, they still will have coverage as long as they pay their COBRA. And in our practice, particularly if a patient has terminated, and they're going to have a procedure or they're going to terminate within, you know, 60 days of when their procedure is going to take place, we require that the patient actually continue on a COBRA policy for 90 days after their procedure to cover any sort of, you know, adverse events or occurrences that, you know, may occur. Okay. And let's say, for example, that, uh, uh, you know, there is a, a procedure that is applied for, then the procedure is denied. But again, you, it's denied because the person necessarily evaluating it didn't have all the information to adequately say it, it, it should be done. And so you go through the appeals process. Um, how forthcoming are insurance agencies about their appeals processes? And I don't think this is a problem at all. I mean, more, most insurance payers are really forthcoming and they list their appeals process on their websites, as, as does Medicare. Um, I really don't think that's where the problem lies in this whole situation. I think really 
it lies in the unnecessary denials to begin with that brings you to the appeals process in the first place. Um, you know, payers need to have a pre-authorization process that, that's evidence-based, transparent, and efficient. And, you know, if they did, care could take place in a timely fashion, and this would lead to greater patient satisfaction and more positive outcomes for patients. I think that, you know, the appeals process itself is very straightforward. It's very laid out. But the problem is, is you have to use these appeal processes far too often with the insurance companies because of their denials. Yeah. And as EMRs here are definitely a ubiquitous feature now, um, do you see that some of these pre-authorizations are becoming going to become easier with the EMRs or you know, on the flip side, could it potentially become harder? Or does it really play a role? That That's a really good question. I can't really think that it could become harder or more cumbersome than it is right now. Um, you know, in 2017, the AMA did a prior authorization survey, and the amount of time that was consumed by providers and their offices was astronomical. Um, it was reported that on a weekly basis, physicians spend a minimum of one hour, nursing-type physicians spend a minimum of about 13 hours, and clerical positions spend about a minimum of six hours per week on the authorization process. You know, in looking at the totals from this report, it's about 853 hours per year of staff, which cost a practice about $80,000 in labor annually. Um, and that's within with one physician provider. That's for one physician. If you look at this nationally, it was estimated that it cost about $69 billion annually across the nation, the pre-authorization denial process. And that is an astronomical figure. I mean, this survey was, um, like I said, done by the AMA in 2017. Um, you know, it showed that physicians generally kind of do create about 29 medical authorizations um, per week. And this not, is medical authorizations. This isn't even talking about um, authorizations for prescriptions, for medications. And it was estimated about 80% of these can't be completed without actually responding to clinical questionnaire or submitting clinical records. So when you look at this, this figure is, is really crazy that um, only about 20% of authorizations that you go for can actually be obtained in a timely fashion right there on the spot. And even if a practice is able to get that authorization, um, many times when you get the claim back, when you send that in for billing and you file a claim, when you get that claim back, it's denied on the claim. And a lot of times it's denied for erroneous reasons. And each time that claim needs to be resubmitted, it's costing a practice approximately about $25 to rework and resubmit that claim. So in looking at this, you know, small practices cannot afford this type of cost. They simply can't. Yeah, that's astronomical numbers. But as far as we know, the EMRs, are, it'll be hard to see where they're coming out on this at the moment in terms of helping or like you said, not or hopefully not hurting anymore. Um, but do you think in, in the early adoption of the EMRs that it's helping some with these claims? 
No, I don't think the EMR is helping at all because there there really is no interoperability or there's no integration with any of the EMR systems right now. So you can't do this via your EMR system completely. Okay. And speaking and kind of pivoting towards guidelines uh, that would help in determination. I know NAS and, and several societies spend quite a bit of time on creating clinical practice guidelines, which are obviously very useful for its members. And insurance companies also use their guidelines for determining coverage. But how how do you see these um, guidelines interacting, or how, how much do you see insurance companies using the guidelines from the society? Well, I, like I said at the beginning of this, I've been on the payer policy um, review uh, committee for many years now. And NAS has two committees that actually um, deal with this. They have the Payer Policy Review Committee, which actually reviews insurance policies, insurance company policies. And then they have the Coverage Committee, which actually makes coverage guidelines so that other insurance companies can uh, visualize those and NAS members can visualize those on the web website. I think in the last several years, NAS has been really instrumental in helping to guide payer policies. Um, from about October of 2016 through February of 2018, NAS received 62 requests from about 29 pairs on a total of about 480 um, or so topics regarding pair policies. Like I said, both the Pair Policy Review Committee and Coverage Committees work very closely with the insurance companies, and more and more pairs are asking the Pair Policy Review Committee to review their guidelines and provide feedback. And the committee has been doing this and working very closely with the pairs on this to, to help them with evidence-based recommendations. So I think this has been very successful in their, influencing their coverage decisions. Um, Payers have also been increasingly referring to the NAS coverage guidelines and their policies. So if you go on to um, one of the major insurance companies, uh, the payers' website, and you look at their policies, often they refer to the NAS coverage guidelines in their own policies. So I think, you know, there's been a close relationship, and this relationship is actually getting closer between NAS and the payers. So I think this is a very positive thing and a very positive step. That's great. And at the same time, are there certain insurance groups or, you know, ranging from CMS to, you know, many of the private groups, are there ones that seem more open to this, uh, adopting this process of working with NAS and other uh, societies on these guidelines? Or, you know, are there ones in particular that seem to not very be very open to this? You know what? Uh, no. I think that, um, you know, I, I, there are insurance companies that appear to be less open to it, but, you know, I, I don't want to concentrate on that right now. Um, that obviously is very subjective, um, you know, in my experience. And, and this really, it also really varies not only with the insurance company, but what region of the country the insurance company is located in. Um, so. You know, whereas I may be having one problem with an insurance company in Arizona, that problem really isn't the same with that insurance company in, say, New York. So I, I don't really believe that there's one um, insurance company that's actually more, um, you know, receptive than another, although there are several insurance companies or payers that are less receptive. Okay. 
And do you feel that, like, the Joint Commission Center of Excellence Center of Excellences and Blue Cross Blue Shield Blue Distinction help these processes to limit denials or appeals or, or not? No, you know, I don't really think these centers are, are focused on on this process. I mean, they're more focused on, you know, cost efficacy and quality standards, and, and that's why they have those um, centers of excellence and, and distinction programs. Um, NAS several years ago, um, I was part of a, a committee called the Distinction. It was the Distinction Task Force, and we got the heads of all the major insurance companies together, and we we're trying to actually um, work on this process, work on the pre-authorization process, work on, you know, the quality process, and, and develop our own distinction program. But the insurance companies really weren't um, receptive to actually rewarding the members in that program with extra benefits such as, you know, help in the authorization uh, process or um, increased um, reimbursement. So, um, you know, right now the centers don't really concentrate on this. Okay. And during this discussion, I know we focus a lot on the surgeon's role as well as the um, payer's role in the process. How much do you feel that the patient should be involved um, or get involved in their denials and their appeal process. Yes, what I'm, I actually teach a segment on this in our uh, coding course for NAS because I think it's extremely important. Um, with the ACA, um, patients were, with the start of the ACA, the patients were then ensured that they had a right to an appeal. Prior to this, it was really in the physician's hands to appeal um, if they didn't agree. But the ACA actually created a process that allows patients to be able to appeal, and then if they don't agree with that appeal, they can actually ask for an external review process by an independent third party. So um, I think it's critical that patients become involved. Um, there was one study done in 2011 from the uh, GAO, which is the Government Accountability Office, where it showed that patients were successful approximately 39 to 59% of the time when they appealed, when the when the um, physicians or providers actually were not successful prior to that. So I think it's critical. I think, um, you know, with the ACA, and um, they have created a process for this to happen, and there are a lot of key um, nonprofit resources now. There's one called the Patient Advocates Foundation. They actually have a 32-page brochure that's called a Guide to Navigating Insurance Appeals Process that actually lays out everything that patients can do to appeal their claim and the agencies that they can contact um, in order to help with the appeals process. There are about 44 states now that offer independent reviews. Um, they don't handle every type of issue, unfortunately, and each of them has its own rules, so you know patients really need to check within their state. But there are many avenues now that patients can use to appeal the process themselves. And many states have even established consumer assistance program to help with the appeals process. Even, you know, Medicare has a site. They have an appeal site where, you know, patients can visit. Um, it's called the Center for Consumer Information and Insurance Oversight. Um, and they have a website that you can go on and that kind of guides patients through the appeal process. So I think it's critical in our practice. If we can't get anywhere with an insurance company, um, we highly involve the patients, and we've been very, very successful in that. Oh, that's great. 
And separately, what information, so I, your, your article is great at listing out um, so much of the processes step-by-step step, um, to help limit denials and, and the appeals. But is there any information that you would like to tell listeners today that wasn't mentioned in the article that you'd like them to know? Yeah, I mean, you know, it really is a difficult process. You know, you need to be very thorough. There needs to be um, communication between the people in a practitioner's office. They need to be vigilant, and they just need to continue to fight the process. And like we just mentioned, get the patient involved. Awesome. Um, so, Ms. Leahy, uh, one question I have for you involves uh, in terms of denials, is there certain healthcare specialties that you're aware of that seem to have uh, more issues with denials related to their particular specialties or disease conditions that they treat? Yeah, I think that all specialties are affected um, pretty equally. However, if we're looking about and talking and speaking about especially that may be most affected, I would say probably non um, hospital-based primary care providers and independent solo practitioners, um, they really don't have the manpower to fight the fight today. Um, they're struggling to survive as is in this current healthcare environment. Um, again, that 2017 AMA survey showed that, you know, over 30% of practices have staff that work exclusively on the authorization process. And in small practices and like I said, non-hospital-based primary care providers who are practicing on their own, they just don't have that resource. I mean, 84% of the people surveyed in that, in that um, AMA survey said that, you know, it places an extremely high burden on their staff and that this has been increasing over the last five years. Um, you know, 78% of the people that were surveyed, and a lot of these people were primary care providers, reported that the wait for authorization led the patient um, to abandon treatment completely altogether. So the patients were abandoning their treatment. They lost confidence in their doctor, and they eventually became dissatisfied with their doctor because they blamed their physician for the lack of the authorization. So I mean, this had a really, has a really negative effect on those physicians out there. Like I said, the primary care physicians and the independent solo practitioner specialist, you know, maybe it's a spine surgeon, an independent practice, you know, they just don't have that resource to fight this fight, and a lot of those practices are going under, unfortunately. And do you think it's easier for them than where we see where they only basically will accept one type of insurance, just, just to, so that they know only one system in terms of the appeals the, the authorization status instead of trying to take from many different insurance uh, groups? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Dr. Weissman. I, um, it's funny because everybody in their own geographical region knows the insurance companies that give them the most problems. So um, there are providers that actually then come off of those insurance plans that create the most problems because they feel that it's actually more economical to get off of that insurance plan and not be on that insurance plan than it is to receive patients from that insurance plan. And again, you know, the only people that really hurt in that process is the patients because then patients 
are left with a limited provider network that they can go to because a lot of physicians are coming off of plans because of this reason. Yeah. And also now, like, within the hospital system itself um, or within a clinic, you'll see providers who are, are trying to list their diagnosis and what they did uh, for a treatment, uh, for, uh, for a procedure. And at the same time, you might have the coders coming in behind uh, looking at the, at at the same um, diagnosis and giving and giving their views. Uh, for example, in the hospital system I was at, I would put my information and then I would sit down and the coders would then put their information. And, and there was often differences where I would have to talk with a coder. Who is ultimately responsible for the accuracy of that coding? Is it the coder hired by the hospital system or is it the provider? Or you know what? That's a fantastic question. I mean, legally, the ultimate um, responsibility is that of the provider. However, unless you make that a team approach, it's not going to work. You have three key people in that whole process. You have the authorization specialist, the physician, and the coder. So. It doesn't matter where they're employed, if they're all employed in the same building, if they're in different states, it really doesn't matter. But there needs to be some sort of communication that occurs. The physician needs to communicate with the authorization specialist on the codes that need to be authorized. And then if the physician changes that procedure that they're doing, this needs to be further communicated so that the authorization specialist can now get the authorization for the new procedure codes. Um, so if a procedure, a patient comes into clinic and they're signed up for one procedure, so say that they're signed up for an, uh, an A-lift and posterior spinal fusion, but then the uh, physician decides not to do it on this approach. They decided to do maybe a uh, PLIP or a T-lift. Those codes will change. And if those, the authorization was obtained for the first set of codes and not the second set when it changed, then when you submit those codes, that claim is going to be denied. So there needs to be communication between the authorization person and the physician at all times, and then there needs to be communication between the authorization specialist and the billers of what codes actually got authorized. So those codes are the codes that are being billed and they coincide with the procedure that was performed. Uh, many insurance companies will let you go back and get a retro authorization, which means an authorization after the fact if the codes have changed. However, if you submit a claim prior to that retro authorization process, it is very difficult to get that retro authorization. So if everybody's communicating and the billing people are actually not billing that claim until the retro authorization was obtained, there's a high likelihood that they'll be able to get that retro authorization. Once that claim is submitted, it's very difficult to go back and get a retro authorization on codes. Okay, and that's great information to know. And, and related to that, so for example, let's say there is an inaccuracy where the claim is submitted before you know, they didn't apply for a retro uh, authorization and now you have inaccurate coding, it's submitted and it's denied, and it's not gonna go through the appeal process. 
who ultimately, from a financial standpoint, how how has the repercussions of this uh, fallen out over time? Does it um, come down in particular practices towards the provider? Is it looked at the billing department? You know, where where does the fallout occur? Yeah, and that's a fantastic question because, you know, unfortunately it goes well beyond um, provider and the billing department. Um, it actually creates a financial nightmare for the patient because if the codes that you submitted aren't the codes that get authorized, then not only is the physician not going to be paid for that claim, and most practices can absorb that if that happens very infrequently, but what happens is that also means that the hospital is not getting paid or the anesthesiologist who is actually doing anesthesia for that case is also not being paid. And if you as a provider choose not to submit the bill for that to the patient, that's fine, but the hospital is going to submit a bill to the patient, and anesthesia is going to submit a bill to the patient for non-covered charges. So the patient is actually left on a very, very um, unfortunate end in that situation, and um, that actually requires coordination of all parties involved to try to get the claim paid and processed in some fashion. Okay, so as a patient, you could then end up with this this bill where you went for a procedure that you thought had been authorized, turns out several parts are denied, and now you are stuck with certain parts of a bill that you're trying to figure out how to pay. And Correct. I'm guessing I mean, this, this, this happens not only with like coding issues, but it happens with medical necessity issues. So if um, there's not appropriate documentation in the patient's chart, and there's a um, review after the procedure by the insurance companies, which happened. This was um, happening a lot with rack audits with um, um, Medicare and the insurance companies. Um, that they came back and they did a retro review it, and they said, "Hey, listen, you know the documentation. Even though we authorized that case, the documentation that is in the chart doesn't substantiate the medical necessity for that case. We're not going to pay for it." And that left, again, that left the patients dealing with the fallout from that and, and, the, and the bills from that. So, you know, in that type of case where that happens, everybody needs to work collectively, the patient, the hospital, the provider, and the insurance company to try to figure out a solution to that and to get that paid. You know, sometimes the solution is that the documentation just wasn't in the chart and that it does exist, but it, you know it just wasn't notated. So sometimes it's just a matter of going back and notating the documentation, or actually appealing that decision. And there's several levels of appeals that you can use to actually get that overturned. And and before this, you know, in order to help the providers as well as the patients. Now, and and going back towards training. So years ago, you know, I trained back in the uh, 90s really not much was talked about in terms of actual coding. Uh, now, now with training going forward, how are current residents and fellows coming out with some of this knowledge? Do you think it has improved or do you think there's still significant areas for improvement so that providers properly understand what they are facing as well as their patients? Yeah, I really do. I think there is significant areas uh, for improvement, and I think really this lies with fellowship programs. I mean, we have two fellows that we have every year in our fellowship program, 
here at the Spine Institute of Arizona, and we actually, I spend uh, the last four months of their practice meeting with them one day a week to actually go over proper coding, go over claims, go over authorizations, go over communication, go over practice, actually practice management. And, you know, NAS has been doing a great job at this. They've had several symposium and forums at their annual meeting that actually address this. Um, we have a resident and fellow course that um, there, there is a, a lecture in the resident and fellow course that NAS runs that has this in it um, that, you know, goes over different coding issues with fellows so that they know going out. And so I think we're working on that problem. Um, they're, like I said, NASA has the Young Spine Surgeons Forum, and they have symposium throughout the annual meeting that actually deals specifically with that. And then, you know, for fellows, it's worth for fellows who are coming out of practice to actually invest in their um, own practice and go to a coding course. We see. Um, I'm the director of our coding course at NAS, and we see more and more fellow participants coming straight out of their fellowships to learn how to do this because now they realize what, what a critical part of the practice this is for them. And, and for people who don't necessarily, let's say, can't get to a course right away, is there literature that you can recommend out there that is really, that you think is really exemplifies best practices in this area? That any you would recommend any provider should have a copy of? You know, I really don't think that there's um, a lot of literature per se out there. I, I think there are resources for them. I don't think there's any literature. I do think there's resources for them. I know that, you know, um, CMS allows providers to actually submit coding questions to them prior to submitting a claim. NAS on its website has an area for people who are practicing when they don't know how to code something to submit op reports um, with coding on it and have that looked at and corrected by the committee and so that they are coding properly. And then in that same avenue, the committee will also go back and give recommendations to the practice of what they should be doing or, you know, how they should, you know, handle this in the future, handle, you know, claims or issues where they don't know how to code in the future. So just CMS um, is the only insurance company I know that allows questions. Um, you know, my one big thing that I can say is that I think the worst resources for um, fellows um, to use in trying to code, which they often do, is actually going to the um, uh, industry representatives who tell them in the operating room to code something a certain way, um, I, I strongly advise against that. And, and where, is that, where, where is that creating a problem? Like where, when you say advise against that, what things are occurring that make you go, hmm, this isn't something that you should do um, uh, you know, uh, related to that? Well, because industry um, representatives, um, you know, often, don't know the proper coding for a procedure. And if they're giving advice um, on how to code and that advice is being followed and it's incorrect, that sets a physician up um, to actually submit a claim that is not correct or fraudulent. Okay. 
Well, that is very good to know. So, Ms. Leahy, it has been a great honor to talk with you. I think we have learned quite a bit uh, and added some valuable knowledge to this uh, to the very complicated process of insurance and denials and appeals. Um, again, I'd like to thank you for your time uh, to come on the program. Oh, you're quite welcome. It was my pleasure. Mm -hmm.